0: Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this afternoon in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What a joy, honor, and privilege it is to be here to worship with you, to fellowship with you, to be under the word with you, and to have this additional blessing of standing behind this sacred prayer desk to proclaim to you the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I am grateful. And thankful for how my life has been richly blessed, my faith has been strengthened, my ministry guided by the faithful teaching that comes from this pulpit by Dr. MacArthur. And it's a joy to be here with you. I was asked to address the topic of the life of the church, and I would like to do that from a lesson that Jesus teaches from an example He gives in John chapter 13. Let me breathe the word of prayer and ask God's blessings over our time, and then I want you to hear the reading of God's Word. Father, we thank You and praise You for the privilege of gathering together to worship You in spirit and in truth. We praise You for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We thank You for Your Word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our pathway. Give us understanding now that we may comprehend the Scriptures. Help me to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And as the seed of the word is planted, we recognize that you alone can give the increase. So as always, we reserve for you the highest praise and full credit for the fruit that shall come from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought, also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than he, than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. Here Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says that The body life of the local church, of his people, of the disciples, should be a community of foot washers. The text begins by setting the scene. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, a borrowed loft, in which they will observe together the feast of the Passover. This annual holy feast, of course, commemorated the Exodus, when God delivered the children of Israel from the oppression of Pharaoh, and the bondage of Egypt. The term Passover itself speaks to God's judgment on Egypt. As the firstborn male of every Egyptian household was slain, but death passed over the houses of the children of Israel that were covered by blood on the doorpost. In this upper room, as they celebrate the feast of the Passover, little do the disciples know that this will be the last meal they will share with Jesus. Just hours from these events, Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. John chapter 13 and the following chapters record what we call the upper room discourse, this final set of instructions Jesus gives to his disciples before these events take place of his passion. These discussions and instructions begin, however, with the text for our time together now, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and lays down a standard for his disciples in so doing. In a real sense, everything that Jesus will say in the coming chapters to them is really rooted, I believe, in, in this text, where he lays down what he calls in verse 15 an example for them to follow. Here we are reminded, in no uncertain terms, that servanthood is essential to Christianity. This is an important truth for us to remember as pastors of the Lord's church. This is an important truth for us to remember as sinners who need this truth that we would teach those whom we serve. In fact, one pastor after preaching this text was confronted at the door by a member who wanted a little bit of clarification and said, now let me see if I'm getting this straight. You're saying, pastor, that all Christianity basically boils down to basin theology, B-A-S-I-N, basin theology. He says, what do you mean? He says, in Christianity, it seems either you take a basin and become like Jesus in serving others, or you take a basin and be like Pilate and wash your hands of Jesus. He might have been on target there. Here we do see a real dividing line about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe what it means for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be the church. Here we are reminded that servanthood is essential to Christianity. Those who would follow Christ must follow his example of servanthood. The life of the church is to be made up of a community of footwashers who serve one another. What does this mean? There are several lessons here. I believe for the life of the church from the example of Jesus, the first would be this the motivation for service is love. The motivation for service is love. Now, says verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The verse, and thus the chapter, begins with a time reference. In terms of the human calendar, it is the feast of the Passover. In terms of the divine schedule, Jesus knew that his hour had come. As you read through the Gospel of John, various circumstances arise and Jesus talks about his hour or the fact that his hour had not yet come. But now he says here in verse 1 that Jesus knew his hour had come. Note the language John uses in this first verse as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. We see here as the shadow of the cross becomes larger and darker. Here John speaks of Jesus as if he's a frequent flyer taking another flight on his way home. He is, listen to the language, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Even at death, Jesus has everything under control. What is on his heart and mind during this time? The text says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In this scene, we see that Jesus is consumed with and driven by love for his own. This is his particular love for his own people here that is important to note. Indeed, we believe in common grace, Matthew 5 Verse 48 tells us that God lets the sun shine on the good and the evil and lets his rain fall on the just and the unjust. But God has special love for his own. Jesus here is moved by, consumed with, driven by love for his own. And John describes this by saying he he loved them to the end. This is not merely a reference to the duration of His love. Indeed, Jesus' love is unending and unchanging and unconditional, but this is about the degree of His love. He loved them fully and completely and perfectly. He loved them, says the language here, to the end. And all that will happen in verses 2 through 11 when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and in verses 12 through 17 when He explains his washing of the disciples' feet. It's all rooted here in verse 1, that Jesus serves his disciples motivated by his love for his own. And we are reminded in this opening verse that true Christian servanthood starts with love in your heart, not a towel in your hand. In 1 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1 that is, Verse 22 through 25, Peter says, "'Having purified your soul by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The first lesson we see here is that the motivation for service is love. Jesus will wash his disciples' feet, motivated, consumed with, driven by his love for his own. And we're called to love one another. But this is not natural to us. As Peter says here in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 22 and 23, he reminds us that this this kind of Christ-like love is not natural to us. As sinners, we, we most naturally are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. But as those who have been born again, since we have been born again by the imperishable seed of the Word of God, we are to love one another. Love is the birthmark of Christian discipleship. And it moves us and motivates us to serve one another. Would you consider, secondly, that the model of service is Jesus? The model of service is Jesus, After this introductory statement in verse 1, verses 2 through 11 records the event of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It is a dramatic and disturbing act. Consider on one hand that the example of Jesus was a dramatic act. Verses 2 through 5 reads, During the supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. What a scene. Jesus and His disciples entered the upper room, their travels, resulting in them entering into the room with dirty, dusty feet. Basic hospitality would have some servant to wash their feet. But Luke 22, verse 24, tells us that as they enter in the upper room, there's a dispute among the disciples about who will be regarded as the greatest. Jesus has not departed yet, but they're already arguing about who's going to be in charge. And no one will give up leverage by washing feet. So they, they all go to the table with dirty feet. Here, brothers... we we are reminded that conflict in the church is rooted here when we have an attitude of, of lording it over, when we're more concerned about who's in charge rather than simply serving one another like Christ. When our authority, our role, is more important than serving like Christ, Then division arises, and Christ is dishonored, and the gospel is muted. The disciples are playing big shots at the table. And Jesus replies, responds to the scene by getting up. And it might be strange to some of y'all, but where I come from, when somebody's saying amen like that, that's like saying, sick them to a dog, it makes you (laughs) preach harder. (laughs) Uh, Jesus gets up and takes off his outer garment and uh, gets him a basin and water and a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Another note here in this scene is significant. Verse 2 tells us that these events are happening when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas will soon sneak out of the room to betray Jesus. He will betray Jesus with a kiss. And this will set off the events of Jesus' final moments and leading up to his crucifixion. The text is very clear to us as you read it in its entirety that, that, that Judas is, is unregenerate. And the devil had free reign in his heart. And they were on one accord, Judas and, and Satan, about the plan against Jesus. In fact, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus will make it clear, uh, John will make it clear in, in as, as if in a footnote, that Jesus says what he says because he knew who was going to betray him. Not everyone in that room was clean. All these indications tell us, brothers, that Judas was in the room when Jesus began to wash feet. Would you have washed Judas' feet? I think I would have. But I think I would have made sure the water was scalding and hot and then stuck its <laughs> feet in there. <laughs> but I imagine Jesus washed the feet of Judas all the more tenderly. John Phillips says we see here the feet of Judas, feet washed by the Savior, and in a few chapters later, we'll see the feet of Jesus, feet pierced by sinners. I think this reference reminds us that following the example of Jesus, we are called to be servants, servant leaders as pastors, and that the church is to be a community of footwashers. And by following the example of Jesus, we don't have the right to determine who deserves our service. Verse 3. Since says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What a setup for the scene here. Jesus is fully aware of his sovereign authority. He is fully aware of his sovereign authority. He is aware of his deity. He is aware of his destiny. He came from God. He is going back to God. And yet it is with what he knows that he takes out his honor garment and gets a towel and washes the feet of his disciples. There is no complex here about what others will think about Jesus doing such a lowly act. Jesus, knowing, says the text, that the Father had given all things into his hands, was yet free to wash his disciples' feet. We are reminded that in a devotional thought that we we must not determine the the worth of our service by the, the prominence of our role. Prominence and significance, brothers in ministry, are not the same thing. And everyone at the front of the line is not necessarily the most important person in the line. Jesus says it this way, that the first shall be last and the last shall be what? First. Here, Jesus, who knows that all things have been given into his hands, now washes the disciples' feet. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus takes the lowly role of servanthood. This is a reminder of what Jesus had already done in his incarnation in a much more infinite way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7 says, For though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What Jesus does in this text points back to what he had done in his incarnation, and it points ahead to what he will do in his crucifixion. In fact, Philippians 2 and 8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But after this dramatic example, we we see in verses 6 through 10 that the example of Jesus was not only dramatic, it it was disturbing. Verses 6 through 10 again reads, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In the previous verses, there's this hush, if you will, over the text. Seems as without a word, Jesus gets up and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And by the record, no one is saying a word. But this has to be embarrassing both for the disciples. They're embarrassed for themselves and for Jesus. They can't believe what's going on. They trade awkward glances, but no one says anything until we get to Peter. Some somebody needs to say something about what's going on, and it, it might as well be Peter. When he gets to Peter, Peter says, "Lord, do do you wash my feet?" As you read that question, lean in on the pronouns. Lord, do you w- wash? My feet? This is Peter's troubling question. He, he just can't make sense of it all. He, he's, he's disturbed. He's distressed by this scene of the Lord and the teacher getting down, washing the feet of the disciples. Peter is incredulous. No one is saying anything, but something needs to be said. And Peter says, Lord, what are you doing? Jesus answers this question. Verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter, just let me do what I'm doing. It doesn't make sense now, but you'll later understand. It's true of life and ministry, isn't it? This verse just reminds me of the many times in life and in ministry where you have to trust and obey the Lord even when He's up to something you don't understand. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, if I may paraphrase. Do not depend on what you think you know. But in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths." So there's Peter's troubling question, Lord, what are you doing? Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you'll understand it later. He gets an answer to his question, but being Peter, that's not the end. We go from Peter's troubling question to Peter's stubborn refusal. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. No, not ever. He he is emphatic. Somebody's got to put a stop to this. And it might as well be Peter. This scene, this scene has gone too far and it has to stop here. You will never wash my feet. On one hand, this is an expression of humility. He just can't wrap his mind around The Lord Jesus stooping down to wash his feet, and at the same time, it's an expression of pride. He's he's too humble to let Jesus wash his feet, but he's not that humble for him to tell Jesus what he ain't going to (laughs) do. You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You catch, brothers, at this point, we're not talking about feet anymore. You have no part with me if, if I do not wash You. We're now at language for salvation. We're now having language that points us to a bigger reality. The Bible says in verse 7 of 1 John 1, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. This is what the blood of Jesus does. It washes us. It cleanses us. It purifies us. It takes what was old and dirty and makes us brand new. Here we are reminded as well that that salvation is, is not about what we do for the Lord. It's about what He does for us. You have no part with me if I don't wash you. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not, not a result of works, so that when, when you are saved, you have nothing to boast or brag about. God gets all the glory. If I do not wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. So the text proceeds here then from Peter's troubling question to Peter's stubborn refusal to Peter's devotional conclusion. Verses uh, 9 and 10, we're just in the whole scene between Jesus and Peter here, we, we see how people may respond to your service. There, there will be people like Peter who there may be people who will question your service. There may be people who reject your service. And then there may be people who abuse your service. Peter did all three in this conversation. Did you catch it? First, he questions the Lord, what are you doing? Then he rejects the Lord's service. "You, You will never wash my feet. Jesus says in verse number eight, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, Peter, verse nine, shifts gears again. Do you see him? Now, Lord, if that's the way this is, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Oh, to be with you, I've got to be washed? Then not just my feet. Give me the full-body treatment, Lord, and, and wash all of me. This is a statement of his devotion to Jesus. Listen to how Jesus responds one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not, not all of you are clean. A friend invites you to dinner, and you would take a bath maybe and get dressed, and then walk to the friend's house for dinner, walk to the friend's house in open-toed shoes over unpaved dirt roads. And by the time you arrived at the friend's house, your, your sandaled feet would be a little dusty and dirty from the walk. Basic hospitality would be that your feet would be washed when you enter the friend's home, that—that's the hospitality. N- not that you get to the house and take a whole nother bath at the friend's house. You—you you already clean. You just—you just need your feet washed. Jesus, here again we are pointing to things, pointing us to things bigger than just these, this, this foot discussion. This is more than than about feet. This is about saving faith. The good news here that Jesus points us to is that when He cleanses you, you are cleansed forever. If if anyone's… 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says to us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is… A new creation, the old has passed, and behold, the new has come. By His amazing grace, by His bloody cross, by His empty tomb, Christ makes us clean. Titus says, in chapter 3, verse 5, "...He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy." by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So in the text, we see the motivation for service is love. We see the model of service is Jesus. Thirdly, note that the mandate of service is inescapable. Verses 2 through 11, John takes his time to present this scene of Jesus washing their feet, but in... Following verses, he will give us the meaning and implications of this act. He'll tell us what it means to be a community of footwashers. Footwashers, he will say, obey the command of Jesus. Look at verse number 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? This rhetorical question assumes a negative answer. No. He's already made it clear in his conversation with Peter, they do not understand what is going on. But Jesus will begin to explain. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Teacher refers to the role of a rabbi, Lord speaks of one in authority. And in John's gospel, it refers to the deity of Christ Jesus says, you are calling me teacher and Lord, and you are right about both terms, for so I am. Both terms. I am teacher and Lord. And note, he he, he doesn't say I'm It's right to call me teacher and wrong to call me Lord. It is right, he says, to call me both teacher and Lord for for so I am. He is emphasizing here his authority over those who are his own. Or in the language of Luke 6, verse 46, where he just bluntly asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and will not do what I tell you to do? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, that's who I am. But to call me teacher and Lord comes with obligation, duty. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus, as he will say in verse 15, is is laying down here an example For the disciples to follow. An example of servanthood, if he who is the teacher and Lord can stoop down and do the lowly act of washing the feet, the question the text confronts us with every day of our lives and ministries, are you better than Jesus? If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. We do not believe, as some do, this is the instituting of some additional ordinance besides baptism and the Lord's Supper. In First Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, it is pictured as the hospitable acts of the widows, but, but it's used here for washing feet. It's just a metaphor here for, for Christian service and the kind of service toward one another that is willing to do whatever it takes to serve one another, even the most lowliest of tasks, that we are not, as God's people, fighting for best spots. But we're taking the lowly, lowly role of Christian service. This is totally distinct from the way the world thinks. The world thinks That greatness is having other people to serve you. But the way of Jesus is to descend into greatness. It is to be a servant to one another. It's as simple as this in the body life of the church. Just this simple question, is there anything I can do for you? It's a simple question. I just found it to be a dangerous question as a pastor when I'm calling sick people or grieving people or hurting people or troubling people. Just that, that simple question is a dangerous question. Dangerous because they might really answer it. <laughs> is there anything I can do for you? But this this kind of spirit of servanthood, whatever it takes, even if it's a lowly thing, ought to mark the life of those who've been washed by Jesus, cleansed by Jesus. Foot washers obey the command of Jesus. Foot washers follow the example of Jesus. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus here now really explains all that has happened in the preceding verses. He is giving us an example to follow. We're to follow His example in sanctification. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, He says, Take my yoke upon you, get in the harness with me, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your soul." We're to follow His example in suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And here in John 13, verse 15, we're to follow His example in servanthood. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. When I see this verse, I just um, can't help but think of my mother. When I was a boy and I'd go shopping with my mother and she'd go to particular shops and she would buy a little packet and then buy some material. And then when we get home, she would lay out the, the, the package with the pattern, and then lay out the, the, the material. And she would cut the material, letting the pattern she bought shape the cloth she had bought as she began to sew garments. Jesus here calls on us to let His life be our example. For that matter, to let His death be our example. He died for us and be willing to serve. In 1878, William Booth was establishing the Salvation Army A man traveled there with great ambition to join. Booth was leery of him and gave him the menial task of shining boots. He was offended. He had an ambition to do great things in ministry and was assigned to shine boots. And in his frustration, he was reminded of this scene of Jesus washing feet. And he whispers back to the Lord in prayer. Lord, if you can wash their feet, I can shine their boots. If Jesus can wash feet, then we can serve when we do not feel like it. If Jesus can wash feet, then we can serve even when it costs us something. If Jesus can wash feet, we can serve, even when our service is not well-received or appreciated. Foot washers obey the command of Jesus, follow the example of Jesus, and they receive the blessings of Jesus. Verse 17. Well, verse 16, Jesus says, "'Truly I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master.' nor is a messenger greater than the one who is sent, just for the record, if that's not plain in that statement. Jesus is the master. We are the servants. He is the sender. We are the messengers. Thus, he says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It is a blessing to know the truth. That's where the text is. Begins, it is a blessing to know the truth. I, I love this is one of Jesus's, if you will, forgotten Beatitudes. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And it starts with the importance of knowing the truth. But it doesn't end there. The blessing, the real blessing, is that you do it. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do do them. D. L. Moody was right that the Word of God is not given for our information, it's given for our transformation. And Jesus here lays down this example and gives these instructions so that we might do what He calls us to do in the body life of the church, that the Christian community would be marked by humble servanthood, motivated by love, love that is this kind of love, only characteristic of those who've truly been born again. May the Lord help us to model this in the places where we serve, being servant leaders. And may the Lord help us to teach and live in such a way that where we serve is characterized by Christ-like servanthood. That we might live and minister under the blessings of God, under the smile of heaven, my daddy was a uh, storytelling preacher. And he'd end every sermon with a concluding illustration that he meant to summarize the whole sermon. In fact, he didn't really tell illustrations in his sermon. He waited to hold it to the end. And this became like a big feature in the church I grew up in. He'd introduced the sermon... By saying, "If you miss my message, at least keep my story." This was the signal that he was going into that closing illustration, and I'd watch it be an interesting thing to see. When he'd say that line, deacons would start waking up on the front row. They knew the stormer was <laughs> was almost over. Permit <laughs> me to tell again one of the. Stories I thought about this morning about, as I was meditating on my assignment today that my father would tell of a poor little girl who served a rich family, he said. And on a particular holiday, she was instructed to get them ready because they were going to go out and enjoy the day at the beach. She was not, of course, allowed to go. They would leave her at the house with chores to do. She prepared them to leave and packed them in and saw them off. And it was a beautiful day, so she decided she would just, you know, kind of sit there in the grass and enjoy the day for a little while before she went in and got to her chores. She's distracted by a shadow cast over her. She looks up. There's this fine-dressed, pretty girl standing over her. She looks up and the girl looks down and says, do you know who I am? She says, yes, I I know who you are. You're part of that rich family that live up there on the hill. I've heard discussions about your family around the table. She says, that's right. You, You see, that biggest house up there on the hill, that belonged to my daddy. And, and the biggest boat out there on that water, that belonged to my daddy. And the, then she was just on the roll. You see these shoes? My, my daddy bought these for me, bought me a dozen just like them. You, you like my dress? My daddy bought me this dress and a dozen just like it. And she goes on and on until the poor little girl can't take it anymore. And she looks up and says, well, you know, my daddy's rich too. He is. Well, if your daddy is rich, what does he own? My dad said, the little poor girl looked up and said, You see that land up there that your daddy's house is on? That belongs to my daddy. And you see that water out there that your daddy's boat is on? That belongs to my daddy. My father is rich in houses and land. And he holds the wealth of the world in his hand. Not to be outdone, the rich girl looks down at the poor girl and says, And she sees her dirty dress, the holes in her shoes. If your daddy is so rich, why are you dressed like that? The rich girl looks up and says, excuse my appearance, but I'm not home yet. (laughs) And when I get home, my dad has a new robe waiting on me and new shoes waiting on me. Oh, brothers... We are not home yet. We are still called to serve and to suffer and to sacrifice. But as those who have been born again, those who follow the example of Jesus, those helped by the strength of the Holy Spirit, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Praise God for that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for his truth, wisdom, and authority. And we ask that you would help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Help us to live out the life of the teachings of our faith as those who have been cleansed and washed and made new by Christ as His blood and righteousness is open for us, a new and living way to You. We, we come, Father, now to Your throne of grace and ask for grace and mercy, Lord, to be faithful to the place where You've assigned us. And we pray for the places that we serve in the local church, that You would make, make us a community of footwashers. so that the watching world would know the difference that Christ makes to your glory, we pray. Amen.